Menopause Space podcast is brought to you by Reset 40, an evidence-based nutrition and wellness program for menopause and perimenopause. If you want to understand the potential impact of menopause in the workplace, a recent UK study has some sobering statistics. According to the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development, 59% of women said that menopause had a disruptive impact on their work with a third having to take sick leave to cope with their symptoms. It's fair to say that menopause is the most disruptive career event after having children. So what can employers do to support their colleagues through the menopause? And what are the benefits of incorporating menopause-friendly policies into your D, E and I strategies? That's our focus for today's episode. You're listening to The Menopause Space. Coming up, women experiencing the menopausal transition. That population is one of the fastest growing economic groups and workplace demographics. It's also the age bracket during which women are most likely to move into top leadership positions. And yet the reality is women are turning down promotions and leaving the workforce entirely at the same time. Diversity, equity and inclusiveness leader, Kate Wood. It's no secret that here at the menopause space, we want to break down some of the taboos and the stigmas associated with this transition. We want to rebrand menopause as an age where women are coming into their power, where they have all the experience to share with the world, where they can thrive as leaders, mentors, parents, and partners. We're also on a mission to help organizations put the right policies in place to help support and retain women through perimenopause and menopause. Joining us now to discuss this is Kate Wood a diversity, equity and inclusiveness leader in the financial services industry in Asia. Hi, Kate. Welcome to the Menopause Space. So for the listeners, give us a little bit of background on DE and I in the workplace. Yes, sure. So DE and I, or diversity, equity and inclusiveness, is an evolving term. So I think it all started with the need to ensure that we have a diverse workforce. Diversity can be looked at through the lenses of race, ethnicity, ability, gender, sexual orientation or neurodiversity and beyond. And this kind of different way of thinking can help to strengthen organisations. And so DE&I are the values that organisations are committing to in order to invest in our people and help them to be their true selves at work. Does DE&I currently take women's health into consideration, particularly here in Asia? So I think DNI is constantly evolving and many organizations are also now adding a B belonging. And whilst there are many components of DNI, gender is often used as the most common driver for a DNI strategy. Um, just because we're not just because we're focusing on gender doesn't mean that we're not looking at the workplace from wider DNI lens, but we want to get gender right. So obviously 50% of the world's population are female. So in cre- creating that inclusive workplace for our females will drive the most change for our people off the bat. We also see client loyalty evidence to improve along with company net margins where we have more female leaders in place. And finally, more and more countries, as you know, are starting to regulate gender equity with most recently Australia introducing mandatory pay gap disclosures. But your question around women's health, that also is evolving. I think COVID-19 was great in the way that it started to start the conversation around that, completely changing the way that we work to accommodate better work-life balance, allowing more women to stay in the workforce. And we're seeing a lot of brands promoting menstrual health in the workplace. So organizations are starting to take employee health as a whole and women's health more seriously. 
Wow, that's really encouraging. So I'm just going to throw some statistics out here from a few studies. The European Menopause and Andropause Society, so the EMAS, they published a position statement with the global consensus recommendations on menopause in the workplace. Statistically, 657 million women aged 45 to 59 are menopausal currently in the world. And half of these will contribute to the labour force. But this also doesn't take into account those who are premenopausal, like myself, because of medical reasons, cancer, and those who are transgender or those who are identifying as non-binary. So, you know, this statistic is even bigger. And this study by Bupa in 2019 indicated that 900,000 people in the UK left their jobs due to the menopause. And 80% of those women were menopausal, 75% experienced symptoms, 63% negatively impacted their work, and 25% said that they had considered leaving their jobs. And then one in three also found it difficult to actually talk to, you know, a line manager or somebody in HR about their symptoms. So if we think, you know, about the comment that you made about more women leaders in the workforce and with the, you know, age of retirement in Hong Kong being 65 and all of these women in the workplace, 100% of them going through the menopause, shouldn't this be part of the DEI structure? Is it part of the DEI structure? Am I missing something? And if it's not, how can we implement this to make a difference in women's quality of life within the workplace? It's so good that we even have those statistics, though. I think like those would have been unheard of like a few years ago. I also read that there are 34 known side effects or symptoms of the menopause. So the list is just so long, apart from you know the ones that people commonly talk about. To your question, I think obviously now a lot of organisations do have a diverse workforce, going back to the D and the DNI. Many companies now showing 50-50 across women and men in their organisations. But what we're seeing, to your point, is a real drop off at the leadership level. So whether this reflects women becoming parents or going through phases in their life like menopause that affect their priorities, their work, and then may result in them leaving the workforce, depending on that level of support that's given to them. So great that we have a diverse workforce, but what next? And that's where we come to the E, so equity, which differs from equality in a subtle but important way. Obviously, equality assumes that all people should be treated the same. That equity takes into consideration a person's unique circumstances, adjusting treatment accordingly so that the end result is equal. And then the I, inclusion, referring to how then the workforce experiences the workplace and the degree to which organisations can embrace all employees and enable them to make meaningful conversations. So with that in mind, then, I think organisations are making moves on menopause inclusion in the workplace. The UK and the US are definitely more advanced in this space. I know a number of large international banks and retail outlets as well are revisiting company uniforms, for example, to allow employees to be more comfortable when going through menopausal symptoms like hot flashes. Some organisations also are introducing menopause employee networks, so perhaps within the existing uh, women's networks or even working parents. I have heard of some organisations introducing specific menopause champions that have had specific training to be able to support and advocate. And then also some examples 
importance of menopause e-learning modules as well, being introduced to employees to educate. But, you know, organisations have to consider this as a diversity and inclusion problem, whereas many people still see it as a healthcare problem. Women experiencing the menopausal transition, like you said, that population is one of the fastest growing economic groups and workplace demographics. It's also the age bracket during which women are most likely to move into top leadership positions. And yet the reality is, as you said, women are turning down promotions and leaving the workforce entirely at the same time. No, absolutely. And if I think back to my own personal experience, I was 32 and I took on a big role here in Hong Kong at the the Hong Kong Sports Institute with the athletes. And for the first few years, I didn't have my menopause symptoms under control. And I suffered so badly with cognition issues and information retention were, you know, reading a scientific journal for my job was something that I had to do all day, you know, at times. And I couldn't even retain the first couple of sentences. And even memory, like to retain that information, like if an athlete asked me a question, not knowing that straight off, I felt like I had huge imposter syndrome, particularly in those first couple of years. And I was so thankful that a doctor saw this and offered me help. And within two weeks of getting my hormones under control, literally, I was a different human being. And, you know, I excelled and excelled and excelled. And even now clients that I see, they don't even understand what perimenopause is. And these are the women that I see, never mind maybe male senior leaders or people in HR. So do you think starting off with even just basic awareness education would help benefit women become an advocate for themselves and understand that you're not a basket case and you're not losing your mind and signposting them in the right way? Do you think that could be like a really good way to start? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's not just menopause, right? It's just health as a whole has just become something that we are talking about and learning about so much more. You know, there are stereotypes across all genders. So looking at men's health, for example, and the shocking statistics around men's suicide due to that outdated assumption that men don't talk about their feelings, uh, thereby, you know, propelling a men's mental health crisis. Similarly with women, the dysfunctional norms that we don't speak openly around topics like menstruation, pre and postnatal, menopause, or just hormones in general, causes that kind of huge detriment, not just to individual women, but to what you were saying about your time at the Sports Institute, to their relationships and their potential in the workplace, because they're just not given that safe space required and therefore top talent is lost. So as you said, knowledge is power. And when we look at, you know, going back to pre and postnatal, for example, Women have been giving birth every second of every day for thousands and thousands of years. And yet the amount of evidence based research around topics like pre and postnatal nutrition and exercise is few and far between. Women are still told that they shouldn't eat or drink certain things. They shouldn't exercise when they're pregnant. Absolutely. And none of these statements, often by doctors, are based on any research or evidence. Similarly, like the postnatal phase you know, exercise from six weeks, go back to work at 14 weeks, the total opposite. It's not surprising there's so little information around menopause and both corporates and communities need to do more to change this through not just education, but advocacy. Yes. And I did actually type into the Equal Opportunities Commission in Hong Kong that just the word menopause and literally nothing came up. It said zero. (laughs) So where do we start with that? Yeah. I mean, I can't speak specifically for the commission, but 
that this seems to be a trend globally. I know menopause isn't a specific protected characteristic under most national equality acts, but if an employee or worker is put at a disadvantage and treated less favourably because of their menopause symptoms, then this could be discrimination if it's related to another protected characteristic like age or disability. But just because there isn't a policy in Hong Kong or anywhere else doesn't mean that corporates can't go above and beyond this to increase a sense of belonging for their employees. In your professional experience in Asia, do you think there's a cultural barrier talking about menopause? I feel like, I suppose, working in the women's health space recently, I've recognised that it's not taboo, but it's lack of information that's the challenge with talking about the menopause. But still, what I find is that women are a little bit more comfortable uh, talking about it. But I suppose culturally, you may know obviously more than than I would in in the job that you do. Do you think that that's a barrier here? Yeah, absolutely. In Asia, it's a cultural barrier just to speak about health in general. You know, whether it's mental or physical, it's seen as a sign of weakness, especially growing up in somewhere like Hong Kong to talk about mental and physical health. But again, another positive of the pandemic was the impact it had on people's openness about their health. And those weaknesses associated with sharing about one's mental or physical health have slowly started to break down. We've come a long way in the last three years. I think in Asia, we're at the start of our journey and we're learning from markets like the UK and Oceania, so Australia and New Zealand, that are more advanced in terms of awareness. And there was a lot more advocacy for topics like women's health and then menopause, which I'd say is probably coming slightly behind pre and postnatal and menstruation. But in Asia, we're still in the beginning phases of education. I mean, even myself, I've lived in Asia for 12 years. Um, so most of my adult life and I only really learn about menopause through a talk I went to a few years ago that you that you were on the panel for and I'm still learning but even for myself like learning about things like the benefits of strength training and how that can impact my experience with menopause later in life and the importance of investing in our health as early as possible is so beneficial but people just aren't educated right and that's where corporates can play a big role with that sphere of influence. Like even starting with a lunch and learn, for example, or writing a policy that people who don't have a voice could look at that policy and know that they are supported in a certain way, but they don't have to outwardly talk about it, particularly if they are reluctant due to cultural reasons or just they're overly private, you know, they know what to do and they know that they are feeling this sense of belonging within the organisation and that there is an advocate for them within the organisation. And then there's all their information and signposting to get the help they need to improve their quality of life, which would then improve productivity, presenteeism, absenteeism, and just retain those particularly female leaders who do want a seat at the top table. But for these reasons, before, historically, they may not get the help to get there. Yeah. Yeah. So I know the DE and I is, you know, a huge endeavor for you and for many in Hong Kong and Asia. And menopause is only one item on that list to make sure that everybody within the organization feels that sense of belonging. But if we lived in a perfect world and you could make those suitable changes, what would your top three be? Oh my gosh. I mean, I think it's hard because 
we're so far away from that right now. I think, unfortunately, many corporates are just starting on their DNI journey. And although gender equity is, you know, at the forefront of that, a lot of organisations are unfortunately addressing the outcome or the effect. So they're addressing the balanced workforce rather than the root cause of a fully equitable and inclusive environment to then foster that sense of belonging. Obviously, when you talked about all those statistics earlier, all the many women that leave their jobs because of symptoms, it's not the issue isn't the symptoms, right? It's the absence of support to accompany the challenges associated with those symptoms. So, you know, you talked a little bit about depression, anxiety, sleep deprivation um, that can all result in forgetfulness, difficulty concentrating, less patience. And if you're in a workplace environment, that could translate into forgetting names, missing deadlines, poor mental health. And, you know, it's not being talked about. So if the situation continues, they're leaving the workforce due to anxiety and self-doubt or even being dismissed by unsatisfied employers. So I think managers need to know about this and how they can support their staff. They need to be aware of indirect effects of the menopause on people. So it's not just your women that you need to support, right? It's spouses, significant others, family members, friends. It can put pressures on relationships. So managers need to be able to signpost appropriate support. But, you know, what tangible changes can we introduce now? There's workplace policies, so menopause policies at work, setting out an organisation's approach to staff experiencing those symptoms and what support they can receive. These could outline examples of requests for reasonable adjustments to be made to manage menopausal symptoms, such as flexible working, requesting a different uniform if you're experiencing hot flushes, moving to a cooler part of the office or asking for a fan. You need to just be comfortable, right, to be able to speak to your line manager. It can be embarrassing to talk to colleagues about anything related to health, but being honest about your symptoms and asking for help is the most important first step. And, you know, you might be signed off work by your GP and then menopause is just managed in the same way as any other health related condition. Your line manager should have, you know, the EQ to be able to deal with that and have the conversations around workload and work life balance as well. Oh, I totally agree with all of that. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to start the conversation and, you know, the education that in an ideal world, both you and I would, you know, would love to be uh, throughout organizations is still in its infancy and it will take time to to make those changes. But starting to have the conversation now, that doesn't mean that, you know, a male manager who's recently went on, you know, some training in menopause meet somebody in the pantry who's having a hot flash and uh, says, oh, you're looking a bit hot there. Are you, are you in the menopause? You know, there has to be a little bit of tact around, you know, how we have these conversations. And I suppose women be an advocate for yourself and have that confidence in, you know, your knowledge and get what you need so that you can perform at work to meet the goals that you aspire to. But yeah, just knowing when to have the conversation, I suppose, is important, you know? Yeah. And I think everyone needs to commit to be part of the conversation, right? By destigmatizing normal and healthy experiences in a woman's life. And one of the most important things you can do, as you said, is educate yourself. And both women and men can have a positive impact here. Women can do their own research, as we've talked about. Find a supportive community so that you have a reasonable expectation of what is to come. And you can take steps needed to manage your own wellness. You know, we talked a bit about strength training and also sustainable knowledge around nutrition earlier. We're getting better at this for, you know, pregnancy, but why not menopause? And men can do their own research too, right? So they can ground themselves in the experiences of the women in their lives, 
can approach this stage with a bit more empathy and awareness as well, particularly if they're in leadership or line management roles. And then corporates, obviously, finally, with their sphere of influence, can really add moments that matter across the personal life cycle to part of their DNI strategy. So creating that safe space for talent to be nurtured, whether it's menstruation, mental health, physical health, pre and postnatal or menopause, leaders need to role model this and start start the conversation. Absolutely. And I suppose that's, you know, were we that inspirational comment that you just made there is, you know, leaders need to start taking responsibility. Women leaders, as well as male leaders, you know, need to take that responsibility because starting the conversation and, and giving all your staff throughout the organization a voice, because some women, whether it's the lovely lady who cleans the pantry or, you know, picks up the rubbish from under your desk or, you know, somebody who's a runner within an organisation to do photocopying, you know, making sure that everybody feels supported throughout the organisation and understanding that these symptoms can be managed if they are made aware and they are understood and women and and transgender and non-binary people, they are signposts to get the right help to be an advocate for their own health. Because that's what's really important is the awareness that's there for everybody throughout the organisation. So give people a voice and start the conversation and let's break the taboo around menopause. Let's get these people to great leadership roles and let's give women confidence within the workplace that they can do it and that it doesn't last forever. And you can be whatever you want to be if you can manage your own symptoms. Yeah, 100% agree. The education, engagement and accountability of the top three things for me. So starting with your leaders, engaged leaders from a DNI perspective, increase that sense of belonging, leaders, female or male, acting as menopause role models through lived experience or advocacy, and just making sure, as with all elements of DNI as well, that we're putting the right people in people management roles. You know, people leaders need to have strong emotional intelligence and be held accountable for supporting talent to be at their true selves at work. So yeah, corporates can clearly play a role in educating not just their employees, but also the community as well about the importance of menopause awareness and inclusion. Absolutely. Well, I could talk about this topic forever. I know you're a busy woman, so I will let you go. Kate Wood, thank you so much for joining us today. And good luck with all the work that you're doing in this DE&I space. You're absolutely rocking it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Your experience is really important to us here at the Menopause Space. You can check out our free resources as well as our professional advisory services at themenopausespace.com. We would also love to hear from you. Send us a voice note to the WhatsApp number in the show notes with comments or any questions you would like us to answer about menopause. Or you can email us at podcasts at themenopausespace.com. Next week on The Menopause Space, Dr. Sarah Borwin breaks down some of the health risks associated with the menopause and how we can get ahead of them. That has become the mantra, HRT causes breast cancer, and unfortunately missed a whole lot of nuance around how you take HRT, when you take it, which particular hormones do you take. It was a very unsophisticated analysis of the data. It just said no women should take HRT because they're going to get breast cancer and heart disease. It's not accurate. 
That's it for this edition of the Menopause Space. Join us next week wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lisa Tarquini in Hong Kong and thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Reset 40, an evidence-based nutrition and wellness program for menopause and perimenopause. The Menopause Space is a bold type production produced by Paula Sales and edited by Richard Eldred.